Well, I'm really excited to be um, with you guys this morning, all of you that are here and you that are joining us um, from afar. Let me make sure I keep this is in front of me. Um, now, as, as I was reading through the text for this week, I kept thinking about the community garden that we have started growing out back. Um, Christian and Emily started it last year, and they had a lot of help from Jay and Shay, and um, it just really took off. And so there's some exciting plans for what's going to be happening with it this year, and I'm just I'm really excited to see what it turns into and how it blesses um, our community. And the reason I was thinking of it, um, I think it'll make sense when we read the text, but the soil has been being prepped. Emily had said a couple of weeks ago that um, they had planted seeds and were like had little starts and were growing things inside, getting ready for them to be transferred into the garden outdoors and plans to build you know, bench seating around the outside and just make it a really cool little spot. But the thing with a seed is that when a seed is planted, it dies, right? And then it's transformed. It pushes up through the dirt, through the darkness. It reaches toward the light, and it emerges into the light as something altogether new. It looks different, and it feels different. It smells different. It sprouts, and it grows stronger. It grows taller until it reaches its full potential and produces fruit, whether that be a vegetable or a flower, pine cone. It produces fruit. So those seeds from our garden were on my mind as I was studying this text this week. To give you a little bit of background before um, we go into John chapter 12, um, we need to look first to John chapter 11, where we see that you know, Jesus' ministry, his, his renown is beginning to snowball. It's gaining traction. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Lazarus from the dead, and many people who saw Lazarus alive again believed in Jesus because they saw that miracle. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he eats with him. He eats with Lazarus and Mary and Martha and Judas. Maybe there were some other disciples there. We don't know. But it's at this meal that Mary anoints Jesus' feet with the costly perfume. And a large crowd of people learned that Jesus was with Lazarus. And they came out to meet him. It's like, who wouldn't want to meet the guy that was dead and now is alive again? And who wouldn't want to meet the man that called to him and brought him back to life? I'd be there. The swell of people who believed in Jesus because of the raising of Lazarus was a concern for the chief priests in Jerusalem. But despite the growing fears and the plots of the religious leaders, the crowds continued to grow. The number of believers continued to increase. People had seen that even death was no match for Jesus, and they were moved to belief. The Pharisees, the leaders in the Jewish community, 
were deeply concerned by the growing movement of people believing in Jesus, and they said, look, the whole world has gone after him. So then Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time. He's met with praise and celebration. It's like he's a returning king being met by his fellow Jews. We'll save more on that story for next week for Palm Sunday. But now, as we read in chapter 12, we're going to start at verse 20, we'll see that now some Greeks want to see Jesus too. So now there are Jews and Greeks seeking after him. They first talk to Philip, who then goes to Andrew, and those two disciples go to meet Jesus. So this is John chapter 12, starting at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Now it's interesting here the order that the disciples are approached. Because if, if you've read back um, earlier in John, it was Andrew who was one of the first two disciples that Jesus called. He called them out of their lives of fishing to come and follow him. And then the next day, Philip was called. And so this is a reversal where these two Greeks are approaching Philip first, and then Philip goes to Andrew, who kind of has more precedent, and then they, together they go to Jesus. And Jesus says this, verse 23, he says, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now imagine with me what you might expect Jesus to say next. Jesus has just raised someone from the dead. He's been anointed with costly perfume. He's come into Jerusalem with like a parade and fanfare fit for a king. He's performed numerous miracles in the previous weeks. And now is the time for Jesus to be glorified because the world was coming to him. This is why Jesus came into the world. Wouldn't you think that something big was coming? Something just around the corner that was bigger and better? Well, it was but it certainly wasn't what the disciples had hoped for or imagined. We can imagine that Andrew and Peter were probably very excited coming up to Jesus. Things were going so well. The, the Jews were receiving Jesus, and they seemed to be hailing him as their king. And after years of work, of public ministry, of travel, things finally seemed to be taking off. So with this sense of excitement, Philip and Andrew come before Jesus and they tell him this amazing news that Greeks are asking after him. And his response? In verse 24, Jesus continues, 
I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus' response to their enthusiasm and excitement is to talk about a grain of wheat. And how if a grain of wheat is going to bear fruit, it must die. And then Jesus starts talking about his own death. I'm thinking, like, if I were one of the disciples, that would be kind of anticlimactic, like, confusing, frustrating. I can imagine that Philip and Andrew were thinking, why do you have to be so morbid, Jesus? Why, why can't you just be more optimistic, encouraging? Things are going well. Like, enjoy this. That's often what we'd like to do, too. Have you ever been to a Christian bookstore where you'll find like lots of cards and posters and plaques and they've got nice Bible verses written on them? I don't think I've ever come across anything in the Christian bookstore to decorate my home that says, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Because if we're honest, that's not really what we want to hear. That's not what we want to you know, hang over our doorways or in our children's bedrooms. And we want something more positive and uplifting, something more hopeful. But Jesus shows us that God has bigger and better plans than we could ever imagine. Philip and Andrew are excited with a big reception in Jerusalem, and two Greeks are seeking Jesus, but Jesus knows this is just the beginning of something much bigger. This is just a hint at what's to come. Jesus knows the enormous scope of what God has promised. Did you know, and this, these facts are about five years old, so they may be slightly off, but there are 2.18 billion Christians in the world today. So to put that in some context, it's estimated that the population of the entire Roman Empire in the first century ranged between 46 and 80 million. So there's a substantial margin for error there in all those numbers, but in many of the two billion Christians today, I think, would say that they are Christian just in name. They're nominal Christians. But even then... To put it in some perspective, like let's assume that the highest population of the Roman Empire, 80 million people in Jesus' day, that means that even if only 4% of today's self-proclaimed Christians are true believers, and that's a pretty pessimistic percentage, but even if only 4% of today's Christians were true believers, then there are still more Christians today, far more, then there were human beings alive in the entire Roman Empire at the time of Andrew and Philip. Philip and Andrew had hopes for Christ's kingdom, but they were too modest. They looked to two Gentiles who wanted to see Christ when little did they know that the day would come when more people, the majority of them Gentiles, would follow Christ more than lived in the entire empire in their day. 
but Jesus knew. His expectations far exceeded Andrew's and Philip's. Jesus knew that there is hope in the seed that is buried. Jesus knows that God works through death and resurrection, and so he's trying to reframe his disciples' mindset so they can see what's coming. He also reframes our view of God's kingdom, and in the process, he reframes our view of death and our view of life. Most of us don't like to talk about death or think about it, but death is something that we need to reflect on. We need to learn the lesson from the grain of wheat. Death is real and it's difficult, and it can be difficult even if you're in Christ, and especially for people who are left behind. It separates loved ones. Jesus is preparing his disciples for more than his death, though. And let's be honest, we know death. We know it all too well. It is much, much harder for us to imagine the truth of resurrection and ascension. Let's go to verse 25. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So again, Jesus is speaking in paradoxes and contrasts, love and hate. They're used here as opposites, but hate in the New Testament doesn't necessarily mean like the raw emotion that we think of in the English language. Depending on the context, it can mean anything from to have little regard for all the way to detest. And so if we have little, we should have little regard for our life here on earth. If we let him guide our lives by giving up what he asks of us and taking on what he shows us to take on, then the place that he leads us will be the center of his will for us. It's not always a comfortable or pain-free place to be, but it is the place of obedience. This is the issue that Jesus faced in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed not once, not twice, but three times for God to take the impending suffering away. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. And it is our issue today when we're faced with the choice of following Christ into places of suffering. Not my will, but yours be done is the way of Christ. Jesus struggled in the face of death. Jesus, the Son of God, struggled with what God asked him to do. I find that amazing and also oddly comforting. That means that there is room in the Christian journey for struggle. It means that there's understanding for our human weakness. It means that there's space for us to wish that our roads were not so difficult. The struggle is real, and there is room for it. Verse 27, now my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this house. Father, glorify your name. 
It is this hour to glorify the Father in his death, resurrection, and ascension. Prior to this, Jesus had slipped away from his enemies. He traveled and ministered elsewhere to avoid arrest or stoning. Jesus is very keenly aware of the timing here. Until now, his hour or his time had not yet come, but here it is. And he's resolved to face it head on. We all experience troubled hearts and minds. It's part of the human experience to struggle. And from time to time, we all do. Has your soul ever been so troubled that you couldn't sleep? Couldn't eat? What about when you know you need to go through something that has the potential to completely destroy your life as you know it. At the very least, you expect that it's going to be painful, humiliating, there's no easy path forward. Perhaps walking away and protecting yourself would be easy, and that would be an understandable instinct. Humans tend to shy away from pain Especially in our current culture, we avoid pain whenever possible. And if we have to endure it, we, we try to numb it as much as we can. But I'm going to tell you an uncomfortable truth. Suffering is unavoidable. It comes to everyone. And it's not all bad. We can learn a lot from suffering. It's through the pain and the struggle in life that we grow and mature, and it's where we see Jesus. This cruciform life is not easy. It's not straightforward. We bump and we stumble and we get up again and we keep on trying. And thankfully, we have a God who forgives. We have a God who understands what it is to be human and yet calls us to become ever more like Christ. I know people who have the idea that following Jesus somehow earns them like a, a smooth ride through life, but no. Living authentically as a follower of Jesus is a hard road. It requires acting in ways that run counter to human instinct and being shaped into someone who looks increasingly more like Christ, and it hurts. Following God's path for your life takes intentionality and perseverance, humility, it requires sacrifice. There are so many more easier ways to go through this life, but there are none that are better. Think about when you felt closest to God. For some, you might say that it was the birth of a child or when you were in a beautiful place in nature, like the ocean or the forest. But I think many of us would say that the closest we've ever felt to the presence and the love of God is when we are in our deepest grief and pain. In the moments when it literally seemed like God was holding you up and helping you to breathe. Moments when the single comfort you had was God saying, I'm here, I'm with you. Your whole world might fall away and you might fall apart in the thought of how you will ever not feel this depth of grief or fear or anger or all of the above seems unfathomable, impossible. And the realization that whatever it is you've lost, 
Whatever part of you has died, you can't get it back. And it's a bitter pill to swallow. Things will never be the way that they were. But you can find healing. And you can be made whole in Christ. As hard as it may be to accept, it's eventually going to be okay. It may not feel okay for a really long time, and it doesn't mean that you won't have to go through hard things, but God is with you. And you'll come through the other side of your pain, and it'll still hurt, and it'll still be scary sometimes, but God is still with you. He's working in and through the brokenness, the pain, the loss, the death, and he's working to bring new life. God will take the death, the dirt, the broken, and transform it into something beautiful. The last reading is at verse 32. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now Jesus' words about being lifted up initially referred to his being lifted up on the cross. But as I was reading this, I thought, you know, it's more than that. Because it doesn't end at the cross. He was lifted up from the cross, from the grave, and from the earth. So there's a, a threefold meaning in there. There's a pattern of loss and renewal that runs throughout our lives and in our world. Look at the way that this pattern is present in your life. Maybe in a marriage, a significant relationship, parenting, caretaking, a friendship, whatever it may be. If you have a loving relationship, a committed relationship with another person, you're sacrificing. There's a loss in order to gain. It's everywhere. It's in the changing of the seasons, patterns of nature. Throughout scripture, we see stories of loss and renewal. It's everywhere. It's even at the core of our baptism. We declare every week together, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And dying is more, about the, the, more than the physical death, because it, it is that, but it's also more, because we die a thousand deaths in a lifetime. The loss of a loved one, or a relationship, a job, a dream, are all deaths that we didn't ask for. We give up parts of ourselves for others. Sometimes there's things we need to let go of, things that hold us back from living our fullest life, like fear or anger, resentment, guilt. Now, now that we're moving into the season of spring and new plants are starting to break through the soil, we can appreciate this metaphor of Jesus even more. We dig up bulbs and dry them out before planting again. We are planting seeds indoors or out. But one thing to remember when you're planting is that you don't go back 10 minutes later or even the next day and see new growth. It takes time. 
Growth can be slow, and even when unseen or unrecognized, the power of God is still present and working towards resurrection. Christ in his life suffered death and resurrection. He set a path for us to follow, modeled after a grain of wheat. And this is a path that calls us in every area of our lives. We see it in family, in our spiritual life, in friendships, and we see it in churches. A church cannot grow in kingdom ways without the decision to die to ourselves. A decision of individuals in the church to die to themselves, to serve one another, and then a second decision of the community of faith to die to themselves, to bless their community. If you want to see the church grow in meaningful ways in God's kingdom, you can start by building relationships with people inside of our church and then moving outward. What has God called you to do in your life? Whether it's in the church, whether it's in the vocation you've been called to, whether it's in your relationships, any work that's done well requires us to die in some way in order to see growth. Just about wrapped up here. You see, Jesus came to demonstrate God's strength and power through vulnerability and God's justice through love, mercy, and forgiveness. And those who follow him are called to do the same. Jesus reveals the heart of our loving God by going to die on a cross. Jesus, who is raised again on the third day to prove that love is more powerful than hate and life more powerful than death, this is the Jesus that we are called to imitate, and this is the Jesus who has promised to draw all of us to him. The single grain becomes the bread of life. You know how we're able to think, how we're able to think about God. It deeply impacts how we think about ourselves and about other people and how we act in the world. So many people can only see the holiness of God, but they miss the love and the sacrifice, the inclusivity and the drawing of all people to himself. Many of us have felt how that causes rejection and pain. God is holy, but to be holy is to love sacrificially and to give of oneself for the sake of others. So I'll close with these questions here. If the Greeks from our text today were to show up in our congregations on Easter Sunday when we all regather, would they receive what they hoped for? To see Jesus? We preach Jesus each week and we craft and we lead worship services and we hope that they will facilitate some sort of experience with God for those who gather. But would someone walking in here or turning, tuning in on Facebook for the first time find an experience of seeing Jesus? Would someone who thought a bit differently or maybe thought of themselves as spiritual but not traditionally religious find that Jesus is here? Through the ways that we've constructed worship, 
our building, our music, our Sunday school, our liturgies? Do they reach people who simply want to see Jesus? Now, please don't get me wrong. Traditional preaching and liturgy, that can facilitate genuine encounter with the living God. Absolutely. At the same time, I think we can argue that these things aren't reaching a whole lot of people. People that we love and care about and we wish were with us. People we maybe haven't met yet. People who are desperate to see Jesus but aren't about to sit in a church service. I wonder how much of the way we've always done things we'd be willing to change or adapt to make room for the people that Jesus is drawing to himself even now. To make room for our younger generations, our neighbors and our friends. I wonder if we'd be willing to enter into genuine conversation with folks who used to attend church but don't anymore, or who have never and maybe will never set foot inside of a church building, or who aren't sure just what they believe. To have that conversation, just to ask what might make this a meaningful experience for them? What might help them to see Jesus, to have an encounter with the living God? If we're willing to be open to new things, what kind of Jesus might people see in us? Hopefully it's a Jesus who's compassionate and sacrificial and present. And you know, I think we have an op a unique opportunity coming, hopefully, out of COVID, where the way things have always been has been taken away. We haven't been able to gather. We haven't been able to have Sunday school. We haven't been able to have programs. We haven't been able to do group Bible studies. All of these things have been put on hold, and some of them will come back. Some of them will come back and look different. Some things we may need to let go of in order for new things to grow. I think that, you know, regathering, anticipating Easter Sunday is exciting for so many reasons. And as we begin to regather, what will we look like? What will it feel like? Will we be open to being God's people gathered in new and fruitful ways? Will we have the courage to leave some things behind to embrace the goodness that God has for us? May we be ready to hear and receive those who are coming wishing to see Jesus, even when they are those we least expect. And may we do all for the glory and honor of the holy and precious name of Jesus. Lord, thank you for this image of the seed that dies in order to yield new life. We trust by your grace that we'll follow your path in our death. Let us then seek also to follow you more closely in our life, for we know that to live is Christ and to die is gain.